there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon. Um, God, just thank you that we're able to come together this morning um, and just be in a safe space um, for those of us who might not feel safe in a whole lot of places. Um, I just pray that as we are here today, we're able to um, find community, find grace and peace, and are able to take it with us into our week and into our lives. Just be with us this morning as we close out this um, series on Jesus and nonviolence. In your name, amen. Okay. So this is our final sermon on, uh, for our Jesus and Nonviolence series, um, and I'm kind of combining the Jesus and Nonviolence and the parable series that this was supposed to be, um, and we're going to kind of talk about both, because um, I think Jesus, the idea of Jesus and Nonviolence really shows up all across Jesus' life, um, and the stories that he tells, and the way that he interacts with people. Um, his Sermon on the Mount, obviously we've touched on that pretty extensively, um, but today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, which is a parable that most of us know by heart whether you grew up in the church or not. So we're going to turn there um, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So like I said, over the last couple of weeks we've been talking about nonviolence and we've had a lot of really good conversation Um, and I like that we're kind of all coming from different places. We all have different ideas and we're all contributing and I really appreciate all of you participating in our discussions um, even when we don't necessarily agree with each other. I appreciate that we can have grace and peace and still have these open conversations. I think it's really important that we talk about these things, even when we, especially when we don't agree. Um, and as we kind of move forward in learning how to live this as a way of life, because we're not gonna agree with everyone. And if we can be in a space that we call a safe space as grace and peace and disagree and find a way to move forward together, I think that's the intention to carry that out in our lives. So that was my intention with this whole series, uh, was to learn something new from each other um, and to learn something new from Jesus. But before, um, before we can be done talking about Jesus and nonviolence, we have to talk about what it means to be a neighbor and the way that Jesus defined being a neighbor and what it means to Jesus to love your neighbor. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We're gonna be looking today at the story of the Good Samaritan. So I'm gonna read it first. Um, You should have a a copy in your bulletin. If not, um, you can look at your phone like I'm doing because I left my Bible in the car. Okay. And behold, a lawyer stood up to uh, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, in oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, 
said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So, like I said, we pretty much all know this story by heart, whether you grew up in the church or not. Um, at the very least, you know the context of it. We kind of, as a culture, take this term Good Samaritan and equate it with a person who does good deeds. Um, there's an extensive number of charitable organizations that have the title Samaritan or Good Samaritan in their name. Just to name a few, there's Samaritans International, Good Samaritan Hospital, Good Samaritan Donkey Organization, and Samaritan's Purse. Um, I could go on, there's so many of them. Um, and they all do different things. Um, and they're charitable towards different groups or animals even. Um, but this parable is so well known that anyone can really kind of recall the story or at least know what it's about. It's everywhere. Um, and the f this focus on the Samaritan's good deed, while not necessarily wrong, diminishes the whole point of the story to just doing charity work, basically. Um, but there's a lot more that we miss when we're so focused on just the charitable acts of this person, of the Samaritan. So I think we have to go back um, and hear the story as best we can, as a first century Jewish audience would have heard it. Um, so first and foremost, I think it's important that we look at the context surrounding this story. This story starts with a conversation. So a man who um, is a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him a question. And in true Jesus form, he responds by answering the question with a question, um, which we see in verse 25. Um, where the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, it's important that we notice that throughout the book of Luke, um, Luke doesn't particularly like lawyers and he paints them kind of in a bad light. He makes them seem like the bad guy when he talks about them most often. Um, and we can kind of see a few notes of this in the story, this particular story. Um, so from the very beginning, um, Luke puts this guy as saying that he's testing Jesus. And he uses the same word, testing, that he uses in Luke 4 when he talks about Satan testing Jesus. And so we can kind of see maybe some parallels between those two. Um, by using this language, Luke is kind of putting the lawyer into the position of the devil here in the story. He's testing Jesus in the same way. Um, and then we also see, secondly, that the lawyer calls Jesus teacher, whereas those who followed him and trusted his authority would have more commonly referred to him as the Lord. So by calling him teacher, um, the lawyer is kind of maybe not so sure about his authority or maybe kind of saying like, you're not above me, you don't know more than me. Uh, we're more on the same kind of playing field. So this address suggests that the lawyer doesn't respect his authority. Um, and then lastly, the way that this question is phrased, um, it's as if the lawyer is kind of checking to see, like kind of, it's almost like a gotcha question, right? Like he's trying to make Jesus stumble. like. There's not an answer to this question, right? So how, what are you going to say? Because there's no good way to answer the question. Basically, the lawyer's asking if he thinks Jesus knows the answer, knowing that there isn't one, right? So Jesus responds to this question, obviously, with a question. Uh, and he says, what is written in the law? He's using what the lawyer knows, the law, um, and having him not only explain what the law says, what's written down, but how the lawyer interprets it. Jesus wants to know what this guy's answer would be. Um, and he answers with um, quotes straight from the Torah, which is the book of law that this lawyer would have studied and known pretty extensively. Uh, it was the scriptures of, the, of that time period. But the Torah doesn't talk about eternal life. So what he's getting at here is kind of ambiguous, right? The Torah doesn't address this. No one's really, this idea of eternal life isn't kind of something that Jewish 
people would have talked about. Um, it wasn't really on their radar. The Torah more addresses what it's like to live in the here and now, what it's like to love, what it's like to be in grace and peace. Um, the main concern of Torah is mostly love, love your neighbor and not how to get into heaven, like this lawyer is asking. Um, and he, so the lawyer quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and then love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, the lawyer's answer is correct. Jesus even tells him that. But the lawyer's question hasn't really been answered. And he says, no, no, I have another question because this isn't what I was asking, right? Um, and he pushes. He keeps, he keeps asking. He's, he says, okay, well, if that's your answer, then can you define who my neighbor is? It's almost like the lawyer is saying, okay, if you can define who my neighbor is, I can define who my neighbor isn't. So if you're telling me I have to love this group of people, then it's okay for me to not love this group of people, right? Again, this is a gotcha question. The Torah does find later on in chapter uh, Leviticus 19, if you skip down to 30, verse 34, the, tor the Torah defines the neighbor as the alien who resides with you to be citizens among you. So the lawyer knows the, the Torah's answer, the law's answer to this question. He's waiting to see what Jesus has to say. And Jesus kind of throws everybody for a loop in his response when he responds with the story. So in the story that Jesus tells, he um, tells the story of a person that's been robbed. And he doesn't give any descriptors to this person. We don't know their name, we don't know their nationality, we don't know their status, like are they wealthy, are they poor? We have no idea. Um, and Luke uses he pronouns, but I don't know that we can even really necessarily live by that. Um, we don't, we could say that this is just a person that's been robbed. That is all we know. So we're gonna just leave it at that blanket. This is a person that has been robbed. And they were walking down from Jerusalem, meaning they're leaving Jerusalem. Um, and I think Jesus is vague on purpose. He doesn't give this person any descriptors. He doesn't wanna give anybody any reason to say, oh, this is why they were robbed, or oh, this is why they didn't help him. Um, so this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is well known as something that's a, kind of a dangerous place. And it, Jesus saying, walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been kind of like if we were telling a story and said somebody got lost in Compton. Like I have never been to Compton. I'm sure most of you have never been to Compton, but you can kind of get a picture in your head of like, oh, that sounds scary, um, for in the very least, right? So that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Like this is a scary place. Um, this wouldn't have been an, a story that couldn't have actually happened, right? Like this is something that was very likely and probably did happen often. People got robbed on this road. So anyone hearing this story would have known exactly what Jesus was kind of getting at here, uh, just based on the stories that they had heard. So this person finds himself in a shady part of town, they're robbed, and then they're just left for dead. And then we're introduced to two characters that just kind of pass by, a priest and a Levite. And this is where stereotypes get in the way. And I think that we need to break down what would have the first century Jewish audience have heard when they heard these terms. Because when we hear a priest and a Levite, we immediately think someone that's wealthy and someone that is very religious. And a lot of times when you hear people preach on this passage, they say that the priest and the Levite were under very strict cleansing rituals because they were going to the temple and they weren't allowed to touch a dead body. Um, or some sort of religious justification why they had to pass around, why they couldn't interact with this guy who was most likely dead. Um, but Jewish scholar Amy Gillivine states that this is actually incorrect because cleansing rituals would have been irrelevant in this situation. Priests and Levites are required to stop and assist aid, like a nurse or a doctor or a paramedic would be required to stop, aid, stop and assist um, if they come across a car accident, even if they're off duty, they're required to stop 
So priests and Levites would have fallen under that same kind of requirement. Um, secondly, this they're coming down from Jerusalem. You never go down to the temple. You always go up to the temple, even if, like, geographically you're going up in elevation. You always go up to the temple. So if they're coming down from Jerusalem, it means they're leaving. So they are no longer under those requirements to be clean because they're, they've done their job and they're going home, right? So they're not under the strict cleansing rituals in the first place. Never mind the fact that they're required to stop and assist. Um, so if we strip this kind of narrative away um, of why they're avoiding the person who's presumably dead in the ditch, if we strip away all of their religion from it, it kind of leaves this, like, there's not really a reason. Like, why would you not stop? And Martin Luther King Jr. actually <laughs> claims that the two didn't stop out of fear. Uh, and he says this, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan thought something different. He thought, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So Martin Luther King claims that they, st they didn't stop out of fear. They were scared. Um, this man was robbed. Who knows how close these robbers are? Maybe they're waiting for someone to stop. Maybe they're waiting for this guy to die. Who knows? Um, so they avoided it out of fear. And I think that that's actually pretty likely. But whatever the case, we don't know why they stopped. Um, if they don't stop for religious duties, if they stop because of fear, whatever the case may be. Um, but if they aren't stopping for religious reasons, why give them religious titles in the first place? Um, Jesus is making this story up. It's not something that actually happened as far as we know. So why didn't he just say like some random person? Um, it could have been anybody. But Jesus is using what's called the rule of three here. So a rule of three is um, a literary technique where you're establishing a pattern. So people would have known what to expect. So think, for example, the three little pigs or Goldilocks and the three bears. By the third one, you kind of like know exactly what's going to happen. You know the story, how the story's going to unfold. So the rule of three, as Israelites would have understood it, would have been a Levite, a priest, and an Israelite. So Jesus is telling the story, and everybody's going in with the expectation. They know exactly what's coming. Jesus is getting to the third person, and they're going to assume that it's an Israelite. And then he throws everything off and says, a Samaritan. So who were Samaritans to the Jewish audience, right? Um, he's telling a parable here, and the intention of parables is to provoke. So he changed things up to provoke something in his audience. Instead of naming the expected, he's naming a Samaritan. And although we think of Samaritans as these really good, humble people um, that are kind of an oppressed minority, the Jewish audience wouldn't have thought of that. A first century Jew would have thought of uh, Samaritan as a terrorist, as someone who um, hated them and they hated, they hated each other, right? Like there wasn't any one group that was a particular minority. They hated each other and they were constantly at odds with each other. They didn't agree with the way that they had established their religion. They didn't agree with the books that they decided to use as the Bible. They couldn't agree on anything. And instead of just a agreeing to disagree, if you will, they decided that the other needed to be eliminated. Um, so they were constantly at odds with one another. So think of it this way. Um, this is akin to kind of like if someone was using language that we would understand today. It's like Jesus is telling a story of Larry Curley and Osama bin Laden. Like, right, we would all assume that Larry Curley and Mo um, 
which is, I know, a lot older than me. I grew up on watching that show. <laughs> but um, so assume that instead of saying Mo, he's, it's like saying Os Osama bin Laden. It's very unexpected, um, and it's a, a very large jump. It would have like spiked the radar and Jesus' audience big time. Um, they would have seen the Samaritan as the enemy. And this is where the story really kind of shifts gears and begins to change pace, where Jesus gives no detail to the person in the ditch. He gives extensive detail to the Samaritan. Um, this person offers aid. Um, we know their nationality, they're Samaritan. We know that they're at least of moderate wealth. They are traveling, they have the means and the money to travel, first of all. Um, they're traveling with an animal and they're also traveling with oil, which is something that most people wouldn't have ready access to. Um, so he, this person is of at least moderate wealth. And then they have the skills to be able to negotiate and barter with the person at the inn. Um, they're allowing this person to say, and then they say, whatever cost that you incur, or accrue, sorry, um, I'll be able to pay back. So he has, is trusting the innkeeper with this person that's been found in the ditch, and the innkeeper is trusting the Samaritan to be able to pay pay them back in the end. Um, the Samaritan does more than just check to see if the person is alive, which is what would have been expected. Um, the priest and the Levite were only obligated to check to see if he was alive, if the person in the ditch was alive. Uh, and that was kind of the full extent of it. it um, but the Samaritan goes above and beyond that. They, are, they offer not just care in that moment, but they offer long-term care. They're not just saying like, here, I'll take you to the hospital down the street. No, I'm going to make sure that you have the care that you need and I'm going to pay for it. They're going above and beyond. This demonstrates that loving the neighbor is continual. It involves trust amongst everyone involved. And it, it involves ongoing sacrifice. The Samaritan trusts the innkeeper. The innkeeper trusts the Samaritan. And the Samaritan, or the Israelite trusts the Samaritan. So now we return back to the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer, where Jesus is asking, or where Jesus is asked, who is, or Jesus, sorry, Jesus asked the lawyer, who was the neighbor here? And the lawyer is so wrapped up in his hatred that he can't even say the word Samaritan. He can't say that the neighbor was a Samaritan. He says the one who showed mercy instead. And Jesus tells him, tells him to go and to do likewise, not be, not, not exist, but do do as the Samaritan. And we don't know how the lawyer responds. We don't know if he changes his thinking. We don't know if he changes his way of life. We don't know if he's mad because Jesus gave him a non-answer <laughs> or the answer that he didn't want or he didn't stump Jesus the way that he expected to have stumped Jesus, right? We don't know how the lawyer responds. We can only know how we respond. So how would we respond to this story within this context? Jesus is defining the neighbor here <coughs> technically as the enemy, right? at least the enemy in their eyes. The Jews would have seen Samaritans as the enemy, yet Jesus is painting the enemy as someone capable of doing good. Rather than doing harm, as would be expected, the Samaritan is the one to show love and compassion, grace and peace, something that no one would have expected. Jesus is urging his followers yet again to recognize the humanity and even those who hate us, those we expect to do evil, those we expect to offer the complete opposite of grace and peace. Um, Amy Jillivine poses the question in regards to this parable. Can we finally agree that it's better to acknowledge the humanity and the potential to do good in the enemy rather than to choose death? Imagine the potential of being able to bind up our enemy's wounds or to have them do the same for us. So um, this part of the world 
Israelites and um, Samaritans are actually still um, at odds with each other. They have been for like as long as we can go back. Um, so it, to paint this story in kind of more modern terms so that we can see exactly the extent of what Jesus was saying here, I think we should look at the, this part of the world and how they interact with each other today. So Samaria today is what we know as occupied Palestine and Israel is still Israel. So the traveler would have been coming from Israel on their way to Jerusalem. Um, this person would have been a Jew, um, on their, sorry, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when they're attacked by the robbers. And those who pass by, instead of being an Israelite or um, a priest, would be comparable to like a Jewish medic who um, it works for the Israeli Defense Force or a missionary from the United States. And then the person to stop and assist aid would be a Hamas sympathizer, a Palestinian Muslim. Hamas is a political party that looks for the destruction of Israel. Um, and both Israel and Palestine are at odds with each other. They're both still fighting um, to have to stake claim over the land, um, to stake claim over who's right and who's wrong. So the least expected person to stop and help would be the Hamas sympathizer. Neither party is particularly marginalized, rather they have equal hate for one another. So in today's terms, this story would be titled The Good Hamas Member, which provokes an entirely new meaning to the way we have defined Good Samaritan. So let's go up into this week and let's choose life um, for ourselves, for, for others, the way that we interact with each other. I think that living in the third way um, requires, yes, fighting oppression and having conversations and being creative and how we choose to comply with laws that um, are harmful. But I think that this is the reality of living this in the day in and day out. This is the hard part. Um, for me, anyways, this is the hard part. I can stand up for um, people that I think are being oppressed all day and use my voice for that. But the hard part is loving the people who are hateful. Um, loving the people that I don't agree with and choosing to be there for them, choosing to love them in the way that I interact with them, choosing to love them when they're the ones being harmed. Um, it, no matter how much my mind might say, I think that they deserve it, choosing to love them anyway. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening.